Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Once again, take your Bibles and turn, if you would please, to Luke chapter 11 as we come back to Luke. Luke chapter 11, looking at verses 37 through 54, we're going to take a big chunk today, a big bite. And as we begin, the question is, is have you ever attended a dinner party or some type of get together that was turned out to be very awkward? Where everyone was all of a sudden just didn't feel right, it just seemed like an awkward place to be? Or maybe you've been involved in a conversation with someone And it begins to go off kilter, to go off track. And then all of a sudden you make the mistake of interjecting yourself into that awkward situation, that argument. And all of a sudden the focus comes on you. Those are not fun moments. As we return back to the Gospel of Luke after taking several weeks off, we're reminded that Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem And his providential appointment at Calvary, according to the redemption plan, or the eternal redemption plan of God, and where he is going to reconcile sinners to himself. And during this trip, Jesus, knowing that his time is short, maybe only 18 months left, maybe probably much less, Jesus is using that time to instruct and then teach his disciples on the importance of self-evaluation, on his identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man, uh, on how to pray, uh, uh, giving more information of who he is and what he's called to do, as well as the importance of self-evaluation on their spiritual health. To be a disciple of Christ, we're learning during this trip, is Jesus is, is imparting on them or impressing upon them the importance of having an uncompromising commitment to follow Christ. A disciple is one who has an uncompromising commitment. And we've heard that phrase. We'll be using it quite a bit. Because that's what God is calling us towards today. Is an uncompromising commitment to follow Christ. And I believe that's going to be so much more important as we continue on. Just, uh, just looking around us. There are many things, many laws that are being passed and, and being put in place. That is making it much more difficult to be an uncompromising disciple of Christ. Just this uh, past week or so, well, actually last year, uh, more churches have left the long, one of the longest uh, serving dom- denominations in America, the RCA, the Reformed Church of America. Uh, they're splitting again because of LGBT issues and other types of issues. And the churches are saying, no, we want to include transgenderism and all these types of things, allow them to become preachers and pastors and so on and so forth. And, and churches are starting to have to make a decision. We see in Canada a law just being passed where it is now illegal for a pastor or a counselor to counsel a young person about what the Bible says about sexuality. It's against the law. Uh, Cannot preach about it, cannot teach about it, cannot counsel. And even though we say, well, that's Canada, just north of us, we know that these things are turning events as as they come closer and closer to our door. And California, if anything, is kind of California light in some of those regards and has always wanted to be more progressive and lead the light towards more of those things. So it's important for us. So if you hear that phrase from me a lot, I'm not going to apologize because the Bible is calling us to be an uncompromising 
uh, have an uncompromising commitment in following Christ. In today's passage, Jesus accepts an invitation to dinner with some religious leaders only to have it quickly turn awkward as they begin to criticize him for not following the traditions of men. Jesus, as usual, will turn this criticism into a teaching moment that cuts to the heart of the religious leaders and the problem they are experiencing or having. So with that, let's read Luke chapter 11. We're just going to read the first five verses. There's 37 through 41. In verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and out of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did he not make, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Father, I thank you for this passage to help us to do the work of reading through it, observing it, Father, of looking and understanding the interpretation and then being able to apply this to our lives. So Father, I pray that you would help us to, to, to not be distracted, but to give our mind and our hearts to the reading of the will and of the word and then uh, uh, responding to the Spirit's work. We, again, we thank you for this gift in your name. Amen. Luke notes that just as Jesus was finishing up about teaching about the importance of spiritual self-evaluation, remember we were talking several weeks ago about the eye. If the eye is healthy and that light is there, then you will be healthy. But if not, then you're in the darkness. So he's just been teaching about the importance of a spiritual self-evaluation. A Pharisee joins in and interrupts and, and invites him to a dinner party with some of the other religious leaders that included both the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. Now, as a reminder, the Pharisees were a popular lay movement. They, they were not religious leaders in the fact that they were ordained pastors or they had some type of position, but they were a, a lay movement that worked among the people, teaching them to observe certain types of laws and traditions, and that the more legalistic they were, the more that they would earn God's favor. Now the scribes, the lawyers, same, same term there, uh, were responsible for the teaching and the interpretation of the law of Moses. And, and these two groups come in constant conflict with Christ as you read the Gospels. They're always headbutting. They're always looking uh, to try to trip Jesus up. Well, Jesus graciously accepts their invitation but it quickly turns awkward as Jesus does not follow the religious traditions of washing hands before eating. Now, you and I would think, well, isn't that something normal? But what we're told here is, is not whether or not the Pharisee uh, shared his astonishment with Jesus verbally or if Jesus just read his mind as he was apt to do from time to time. But what it's important to understand is that the issue at hand is not about washing or about hygiene. It's not whether it's appropriate to wash one's hand before setting down to eat. So if you're a teenager here today and your parent says, wash your hands before, G, uh, before dinner, you can't say, well, Jesus didn't. I'm not going to. That's not what this passage is. It's not about hygiene. <clears throat> Professor Thomas Schreiner notes that the washing of hand was not about hygiene, but for ritual purity. 
The Pharisees believed that those that did not wash their hands were defiled. Not, not defiled by germs. They, they didn't understand germs and hygiene as you and I did. It was more about ritual cleanliness. Kind of what you would see in the tabernacle where they would wash their hands before they would give a sacrifice. It, this becomes a little bit clearer in Mark chapter 7. You'll see it here on the monitor where we have an editorial note talking about this same type of issue where Mark in his gospel says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. Again, it's not about hygiene. It's not about germs. It's not about washing off the dirt. I think that was a common sense thing that they did back even back then. But even when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So for them, it was about what if I got in and had contact with someone else who was unclean? Maybe it's a leper. Maybe it's, it's someone who was a Gentile or some other type of thing of that nature. So it was almost a superstitious ritual that they had added onto the law of Moses. In any case, instead of offering an apology or some type of defense of his actions, Jesus launches into an accusation against their own motives and the ways in which they worship. Look back at verse 39. Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So he, now he's not talking about an actual cup, but he's using it as a, as a metaphor of yourselves. You are doing religious rituals and traditions, but yet inside you're still dirty. He says, you fools, in verse 40, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Very true. Jesus goes on to unload on their practice and reveals that in essence what they're doing is they think that they're doing something that is religious and something that is righteous. But in, in any event, it's actually a wicked in the fact that their hearts are still wicked. When Jesus, it's, it's almost kind of like you and I uh, going in and, and maybe we're in the mud or we're in the dirt. We go home to, go home to clean and, and we wash the outside of our hands, but not the inside where we're touching stuff. It's almost that type of thing that's going on. When now Jesus calls them a fool, which he tells us not to call people fools, so is Jesus contradicting himself. But when Jesus calls them a fool, he's not calling them stupid or a moron, but an accusation that they're actually living their lives. Now, this is important, that they're living their lives as if God does not exist, that, that one day they will not stand before God. In Psalms 14.1, you know this passage of scripture, King David sings, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. What we're seeing here is, is, is a fool is one who says there is no God. I am going to live my life in the way that I want. Without any thought that that one day they'll stand before God. That is what truly a fool is. Jesus is informing them that it doesn't matter how religious, <clears throat> how pure you think you are on the outside, it is the inside, the heart, that determines the genuineness of our faith. Pastor Mark MacArthur notes on verse 41 that this contrasts inner virtues with external ceremonies. Now think of this. We, we do this. We understand this. There's external ceremonies. You're, you're here today doing an exter external ceremony. 
You're here to, to worship, to come to church. Now, the thing is, is your internal motivation, virtue may be totally different than what your face is telling me today. Some of you might be here because of duty. You might be here because your parents made you to be here. Maybe you're here because you just don't want to hear me call you or text you later this week asking, how are you? We missed you. It might be just something that you do out of just, uh, out of just routine. But what we need to understand is that there is a difference between your inner purity virtue and what you do on the outward side, on the external ceremonies. He says here, Pastor MacArthur continues, says, alms are to be given not for show, but as an expression of the faithful heart. Remember, Jesus even spoke about this in Matthew. And he says, true almsgiving is not the external act, but one's attitude before God. So again, we think of the the widow and the might, the one who gave all that she had, compared to the one who would give a lot, but he still had much to give. Much he held back to himself is that you and I understand that there are many things that we do in which our attitude is really not behind it. We understand that. We do that maybe every day when we get up. And boy, I got to go to work. I got to put on the right face. But man, I really don't want to be here. You ever had that type of week that day? I'm sure you had. I mean, there's many other things in which we do. We're all guilty of those types of things. In verse 41, Jesus is emphasizing here the need to worship and serve God from the heart. Not just outward appearances. Now, this is things that you know. But again, we're going to just uh, emphasize it in our own lives. We learn this truth from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Remember, Israel was looking for a new king. Saul had, had disappointed. He had rebelled against God. God sends Samuel to the family of Jesse, where David is, David is one of his sons. And he says, go and look, and I will show you who will be king. And so Samuel starts with the oldest son of Jesse, and he works his way. David is a little bit at the youngest. And so he looks at the first son, and he's big, he's strong, he's strapped. And he said, this then must be the king. God says what? The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I think that you and I can attest that many times we have been guilty on looking on the outside of a person and not looking at the intents of their heart in choosing, whether it's politicians, uh, people to date, whatever, all these types of things, friends, so on and so forth, pastors, leaders, elders. We have this Hollywood, you know, from central casting, right? The Rock Hudson type look with the right, you know, the square jaw and so on and so forth. But God says, I look on the inside. It's the inside. It's the virtue. It's the person that is hidden to us that God is most interested in. The religious leaders are more concerned with their religious outward appearances. They want everyone to see that they're washing their hands. They want them to see that they're wearing their tassels. They want them to see that they're dropping lots of alms into the, into the plate so they can hear it rattle. They want people to see them saying loud and long prayers in the middle of the street. And because of this, their attitudes and their heart Jesus pronounces three woes against them. Look with me at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, in verse 44, for you are like the unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What a, what a, what a strong statement that we're going to look there in a moment. Woes, as we look in the scripture, is not so much woe is me as, oh, look how sorrowful I am, or look at my plight. But woes are curses that warn against catastrophe if one continues in their behavior and attitude. In other words, a woe is to say, listen, heads up. You need to be alerted to this. If you continue down this road, catastrophe waits you. Judgment, condemnation, this is a time to repent. Jesus uses, again, this occasion as a teaching moment. He is warning them that they are woefully off track and they will face judgment and condemnation in the last days if they do not repent of their hypocrisy. The accusation against them can be summarized as, and it comes to tithing, as they neglect the greater and weightier points of the law. Yes, they're tithing even the most smallest of things that they do, but they neglect justice. And the love of God. God says, yes, you should tithe of this. You should give of this to the Lord. But why are you forgetting something that is much greater than that? They're guilty of pride in the fact that they want recognition. They want people to see them. They, want the, they do their, their almsgiving and all their rituals so that they may be seen and congratulated and patted on the back. So Jesus gives them as an analogy to a grave. I mean, he says, you are like unmarked graves and people walk off, walk over them without knowing it. Remember, to, for a Jew, it was unclean for them to touch a dead person. They could not touch what a dead person had touched. They could not walk over a grave. And what he's saying here is you look great, but you're making people unclean because they're walking over you without knowing it. In other words, the Pharisees believe they are leading people to a greater relationship with Yahweh. However, they are actually a negative influence that is contaminating their relationship with God and contaminating the relationship of others that others have with God. We have this many times today where there are churches that are pronouncing a prosperity gospel or a health wealth message or producing a, a different type of gospel. I can never think of that. Moralistic theism no. Did I get it right? Moralistic therapeutic deism in which they're teaching do all these virtues, typically let's take the Sermon on the Mount and say these are good things, and then it's therapeutic in which it makes me feel good and that's the God I serve. And we need to recognize that that is typically the American gospel. And again, I recommend to you, if you haven't seen it, look at the American gospel, the, the first one. Uh, it's a great example. I think you can get it on uh, Prime, Amazon Prime. I think on YouTube you might be able to get it for free. Uh, they have a website. They actually have a TV station type thing, a web t internet station that you can watch. But it just gives you some great information on which we ourselves are failing in this. And we think that we are making people better, but in essence we aren't. We're contaminating them. Because we're giving them the false gospel. Now, not here at OVBC, but those who, 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 who teach that type of gospel. In which God just is everything for you. It's that Oprah-type gospel. 
Jesus is not exclusive. There are many ways to God. And here's an exhortation. This is extra. Is I just want to encourage and challenge. And maybe if it's a rebuke, let the reader, let the listener hear. Is parents, spouses, friends. Do not be guilty of this as well. It is of utmost importance that you and I live out our faith so that others may truly follow Christ. Let me tell you, parents, your children will be the first one to sniff out your hypocrisy. They know if you're living out your faith. Eventually, your friends will. Your employer will. Those who work with you and under you will see that as well. And many times we, we talk a good talk and we, we sometimes we say good things, but yet our lives and the way that we live, when we're outside these walls and away from each other, we find ourselves living lives of Pharisees where we say we're pure, but inside our hearts are still wicked and evil. So let us not be guilty of being graves that others walk over not knowing. Let us not contaminate those, but let us be true. Let me ask you, wouldn't you have loved to be in a fly on the wall of that dinner party? To listen to what Jesus said, to see their expression, to hear maybe they're mumbling, maybe they're starting to grumble. Now, as we continue through this passage, one lawyer makes a mistake. A mistake of interjecting himself into the conversation. Which doesn't make sense to me. If Jesus is getting on this person, don't speak up. You ever, I don't know, have you ever done that as a child? If your parent is, 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 is chastising one child, you want to stand up for your brother or sister, and then all of a sudden it turns on you, or maybe at work. You don't want to do that. But this is what the lawyer does. He wants to justify himself and protect his friend and defend his friend. Jesus doesn't spare him, but pronounces three woes against them as well to those that taught the law of Moses. <clears throat> Let's continue in verse 46, Luke chapter 11. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of prophets whom your fathers killed. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your father. For they killed them and they build their tombs. Now skip down to verse 52 and let's look at that third woe. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself and you hindered those who were entering. Their woes can be summed up in three ways. They're loading heavy burdens onto those that they're teaching. Remember, they were the ones who interpret and then apply the law of Moses. And what they're doing is they're adding all these rituals, all these traditions, all these stipulations on the people, but yet then they do not help them. Now, I've lived this type of life. I grew up in a church that was very much like this. 
putting down heavy loads. This is how you, this is how a Christian looks, talks, and acts. So this is how you wear your hair. This is what you do. You, you sign a form. You don't go to movies. You can't go to dances. You can't go to roller skating because it, it has music there. You can't go bowling uh, with your family because they have a bar there. You can, all these things that they loaded up on you, but there never seemed to be any relief. So let me ask you, what would happen to a young person who eventually grows up in that pressure cooker? What do you think happens when they get old enough to make their own decisions? They got to relieve that pressure. It just blows, right? Or maybe even the family blows because it's very hard to live under those types of things. And, And I'll tell you that we sometimes can be guilty of that as well. I know myself have done that with my family. There are rituals and stipulations that I put on them when they were young that now we don't hold them to. Now, of course, they're adults. But even myself has said, you know what? Those rules and stipulations were not right. Give me an example. You know, well, I want to give you an example of that. I just want to go ahead. <clears throat> My family were not happy with you, especially Jake. Was when they were young, I never let them read the Harry Potter series. Why? Because I grew up in an era, a group, an era, in a time when those types of books were demon worship and devil. You couldn't read them. And so I, here, here they, they are, the rage. My kids, everybody's reading them but my kids. And eventually, as I got older, I, I learned more scripture. I learned more things. I learned about the role of fantasy and how it, how it can teach the difference between evil and good and all those types of things, discernment. But I didn't learn that young as young because it wasn't about discernment. It was about just putting all these loads. Now, that's a lot. But number two, they were hypocrites for doing what their ancestors did. Here they are building up all of these temples and, and synagogues and all these other types of statues for, for, their, for the prophets. Spoke highly about them. But yet they themselves, in their hearts, are wanting to kill and murder the prophets as well. They've also taken away the knowledge from the people. The very people who were to interpret and apply scripture, they were holding back that knowledge. They were holding the keys within themselves. Only we can know the truth. And then they would not give it to the people. The lawyers were experts in the law, but used their knowledge to lord it over the people by misinterpreting and misapplying the scriptures for their own benefit. You must come to me. Hence why here at OVBC, you know, we, we want you to come, obviously, we have elders and, and teachers and deacons and those who want to teach the scripture, but, but I want you to be self-eating. I want you to be able to, to read scripture and learn how to observe and interpret and apply it yourself. For we come together, we are all of the priesthood of the, of the ministry, as the Bible tells us. And we're all responsible for doing that, just not one person or two people or committee. Going back to verse 49, Jesus speaks as the wisdom of God. What a great title for Jesus is the wisdom of God. And he prophesies of their future actions against him and his followers. Look at verse 49. He says, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some whom they will kill and persecute. You will be like your father is what he's saying. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. You are no better than your fathers, he is saying. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. 
we wind up making the same mistakes as those who've gone before us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, warned in his letter, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Their actions and attitudes will bear a high price. Now, as we consider this passage and what it means, we must come to the truth that Jesus is telling them of the folly of self-righteousness. The folly, the foolishness of self-righteousness. The religious leaders have succeeded in fooling themselves and others that they were righteous, that they were pure, that they were virtuous. They were Yahweh-fearing teachers and leaders. Yet they were sorely mistaken. And this mistake will cost them dearly and may cost those that they were leading. They believed that their eye was full of light and spiritual health, when in reality it was full of darkness. This becomes clear as we continue on and read in verse 53 of Luke chapter 11. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. See, those woes did not lead them to repentance, but only hardened their heart. Their response is to double down on their plan to entrap and kill Jesus. This dinner party sets the stage for the ending of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem when he'll be betrayed, tortured, and crucified. Their minds were blinded, uh, blinded from the truth. John and his gospel were claimed of Jesus, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Walter Leafield made remarks that full illumination, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the revelation, the special revelation of Christ, only comes when one is willing to receive light from the lamp of God's truth. Let me share with you, if we reject God's word, if we reject the Holy Spirit, if we reject the work of Christ, we will have no illumination. We ourselves will be fools. It is evident that these religious leaders refuse to accept either the man or the ministry of Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. They want to put him in the ground as their fathers had done to the prophets before. What we are seeing clearly in this passage is when worship actually turns to idolatry. Let me say it again. What you're seeing here is when self-righteousness, their worship actually turns to idolatry. The religious leaders worship their own self-righteousness, their own works, their own uh, traditions. And in essence, it puts themselves on the throne that rightly belongs to Christ. As we pointed out earlier, God does not look on the outside of man, but in the inward heart. And we can fool a lot of people with our good works. Many of us have. But we cannot fool God. Sadly, we have become very adept at even fooling ourselves. And, I, and my concern is that we may have some that is here this morning or listening to me, watching us later, 
that they have fooled themselves in thinking and believing that they truly are one of God's children, but in reality, they are not. Jesus has come to preach and introduce the kingdom of God. And it's important for us to understand that the key to the kingdom of God is not in rituals, it's not in legalism, or in the law of Moses, but is in the work of Christ as found in the gospel. Thank you. That's a great place for an amen. To enter that kingdom of God, we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, as you find in Jesus' words in Matthew 4 or 5, 48. And as we know, we are not perfect. The prophet Jeremiah proclaims through the Holy Spirit that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it or understand it? Yahweh declares in Jeremiah 17.10 that I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Why? To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. And again, it's not just the rituals on the outside that we do, but it's the motivation that compels us to do these works of righteousness. For you can do good works, and still be full of dead man's bones. We need to recognize that. Once again, as I've said before, and this really helps me think through the scripture when I see the word heart. Our hearts consist of our thoughts, the thing we think about, the things that we dwell about, the things that linger in our mind. It includes our affections, those things that we're passionate about, those things that we desire, the things that excite us. That's our, that's, that's our affections. The heart also includes our will, the choices that we make, the things that we want to do. And we've all inherited the curse of sin due to the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so as we see here, our thoughts, our affections, and our wills are depraved. They are wicked. They cannot be known. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3.10, you see it here on the monitor, That there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And people will say, well, that's not me. That's not my grandmother. There's no way my mother is a saint. But the Bible continues to say that their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They have shown themselves truly to be fools. (coughs) And let me tell you, those are tough verses to read. And this includes me, includes you, includes our little children. Even our little Autumn that was just born to Jacob and Lorinda, if though you've not known, the, uh, they had their little girl named Autumn Jane. The thing that you and I must understand, there is no amount of good works and righteousness that you and I can do to change this. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Over the centuries, men have invented one religion after another to deal with the guilt and shame that comes with our sin. They've invented new gods to worship, new ways to justify themselves, new ways of interpreting and applying scripture, but to no avail. 
the New American Commentary notes that Jesus proclaims the need of inner purity of heart as the basis for one's external behavior. And so you and I need the new heart that's promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The one that's promised when we see in John chapter 3 is, as Jesus says, we must be born again. But the question remains, how can we obtain this inner purity of the heart when our hearts are wicked? Even King David lamented, as we read earlier, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here's the good news, is that you and I need a savior, not a personal motivational coach, not a life coach, not a a therapist. We need a savior, a Messiah, one who could provide what God requires. And what did God require? Perfection. You and I need one who can give us perfection, for we cannot do that ourselves. We need a righteousness that comes not from ourselves, for there is no righteousness within me. That's what scripture says. But I need what's called an alien righteousness. I need a righteousness that is not my own, but comes from someone, something else. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In Job chapter 9, verse 2, Job had asked, how can mortal man be righteous before God? What a great question. There is no way. One that the Apostle Paul answers in Philippians chapter 3, look with me at verse 8. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. What does he count as lost? All of his learning. Remember, he was a Pharisee. All of his learning, all the rituals, all the traditions, even his heritage. says, I count as lost. Why? Because I have the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what is it that you and I gain from Christ? We see it in verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from doing the rituals, from obeying the word of God in that regard, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. A righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death and that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection from the dead that's a great word see you and I don't need a righteousness of our own we need the righteousness of Christ James Edward McGoldrick writes to acquire the righteousness God demands, people must not look within themselves, for there is no uh, salvation excuse me, <clears throat> in self-esteem. Nor may they depend upon their religious heritage or their personal religious performances. They need alien righteousness from Christ. Scripture affirms that God made Jesus to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Imputation is this big word, this Christian word. You may want to write that down. Imputation. It involves a twofold transaction. Believing sinners obtain righteous standing before God when God imputes their sin to Christ and his righteousness to them. We speak of this as the great exchange. On the cross, God took our sins and imputed it or put it on Christ. So when then he saw Christ, he saw not Christ, but he saw my sin, your sin, your rebellion. But in the same way, he took the righteousness of Christ. The one whose passive and active obedience was perfect. And he imputed it or put it on us. So that when Christ or God looks at you, he does not see you. He sees Christ. See, even in our good works, in attending church, in our giving, in our giving of doing good things for good people, our sins, or I'm sorry, our good works are always mingled with some type of ill motivation and sin. It just always is. It's in our old flesh. And we need to recognize that we need something greater. R.C. Sproul says of this, it's here on the monitor, and I want you to capture this. He says, imputation means that the righteousness of Jesus is counted for me the moment I believe in Jesus Christ. It's not that I am righteous, but that someone else has paid the price. That's what Luther said, going back to R.C. Sproul. That's the righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's extra nos, that's Latin. It's a righteousness that's apart from me. It's not mine inherently. It belongs to Christ. So how do you and I get into heaven? It's from the righteousness of Christ, not my good works. And what does Christ does is when I put my trust in him, he imputes or counts to me his righteousness. And on the basis of that imputed righteousness, God declares me right or declares me just right now. So that if I were to die right now, I go to heaven right now because all the righteousness I will ever need to get there, speaking of heaven, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. You cannot work yourself to heaven. Christianity is the only religion in which God comes down from the mountain, picks us up, and carries us back. It's not us climbing the mountain. It's not us meeting them halfway. It's God coming fully down and bringing us and making us just before God. That's our hope and desire for you today. That you come to the realization that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That the works of Christ have provided all that you need to be reconciled to God. That you have put your faith a confident trust that God has accepted the works of Christ on your behalf. And that if you have done that, that you are now a child of God through adoption. And that now you need to follow Christ through the obedience to his word. Not to earn righteousness, but our heart has changed. We desire to follow him. Now we do not want to be guilty of the same attitudes, behaviors, and the thinking of the religious leaders at this dinner party. We do not want to be, we do not want to be accused of hypocrisy by relying on our good works, but on the works of Christ. <coughs> There will be times when you and I will be tempted to look at our lives and become prideful 
of look at how good I am. Look at, look at how much I go to church. Look how much I give. Look at how, much, how, how well I have grown as a Christian. But the solution to that is a life of confession and repentance. Recognizing that we must come before God every day because our sin is always with us. David cries out, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Christ's righteousness is there to provoke us to imitate himself. This week, Daryl Harrison tweeted a quote of John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. He says, those that religiously name the name of Christ should and must depart from iniquity. Just because we have the righteousness of God does not mean that we can live our life any way that we want. For that shows that we do not have the righteousness of Christ. He goes on to say, because our profession of him is but a lie. For now that we have the alien righteousness of Christ, you and I can now live lives of inner purity and virtue. Charles Spurgeon noted this. I put the, I think the cartoon up there. Again, I want to recommend to you, if you've, if you've never bought a good calendar or, or you've never won a calendar or just follow Ref Tunes, R-E-F-T-O-O-N-S. They just have some great stuff. He says, you will no, never glory in God till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. The Pharisees never learned that, many of them, nor the scribes. Many of our family and friends have not learned that as well. I pray here that there's none here that have not done so. Let us again commit to spiritual self-evaluation that we may be fruitful and valuable as, stewards, valuable as stewards of God's wonderful gifts and grace, giving praise, worship, and thanks for the righteousness of Christ that justifies us before God. Amen? Let's be thankful for the righteousness that not comes from ourselves, but the righteousness from Christ that makes us just before God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to ask the worship team to come on up. And I believe Landon is our pastor's prayer. He's making his way in. But it's time for us to pause to consider what we hear today, what we've learned. And then pray. That God may search our hearts. That there be no hypocrisy in our mind and hearts. That we recognize that we are standing before God. And pray that we may respond to the wonderful news. That we have a righteousness that's not our own. And so with that, I'm going to ask Landon to go ahead and come on in. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.